On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Keystone XL pipeline that is apparently about to be canceled. What impact is this going to have on us, on Canadians? I know what it's going to have on the Americans, depending on which side of the political aisle you're on. It's either going to be a fantastic thing or it's going to be a disaster. But what about up here? We're also going to be talking with Don Robertson, as we do every Monday, about all kinds of things in sports, including why do they not protect superstars more, or maybe more to the point, should they protect superstars more? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Lots of big news going to be happening this week. There's an inauguration coming up. There's going to be a new president. There's going to be a change of power in Washington. But we've learned within the past 24 hours or so, I'm sure you've heard something about this since then, that one of the first things that Joe Biden plans to do once inaugurated on Wednesday is to cancel the allowances for the Keystone XL pipeline. That's the one that's running out of Alberta and down through the states to refineries down in the states. Um, It's going to carry 800,000 barrels a day. Now, some people are going to be celebrating that this is going to be stopped. You know what group that would be, what alignment that would be. Others, and you know what alignment they'll be, are going to look at the financial and economic impact of this and be weeping. Let me bring in Marvin Ryder. Love to have Marvin um, from the DeGroote School of Business to chat a little bit about this. Marvin, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be with you. Um, Before we get into what the full impact of this may or may not be, Reading some of the stories today and seeing some of the tweets and everything else, it seems to have caught our government a little bit off guard that this is happening right away. Should it have? Well, I'm going to say no. Uh, If you don't mind, let me just give a quick context and then we'll get to your question directly. Keystone XL was first proposed in 2005, 15 years ago, and it was considered a win-win One win was that it was going to take Alberta oil south into the United States where it could be refined, so it's good to open up a market for Alberta oil. And the other win was that in the United States they wanted to wean themselves away from foreign oil. And although Canada is a foreign country compared to the United States, we were considered a very friendly alternative, let's say, to Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria, some other nation in the world. So a win for both sides. And thus the project began. And the Keystone XL project is actually uh, has four different phases, and three of them are done. Three of them are done, but the controversial phase was phase four, which was going to see a pipeline built from near the Alberta oil sands down into Nebraska, and then in Nebraska it would link up with some other existing pipelines to take the oil down into the Gulf region of the United States. Uh, you know, 2005, probably around 2010 is when they started to do the environmental assessments on this. Lots and lots of controversy and lots of pressure on the Obama administration to cancel it. So in 2015, President Obama, you know, reading all the tea leaves, said he was going to cancel it. And I say that to you because, of course, President Obama's vice president was Joe Biden. Then Donald Trump gets elected in 2017, or becomes inaugurated in 2017, and immediately reverses this, signs a counter-order, says, yes, go on ahead and, and build the darn thing. And so some work has been done, and the, the, the uh, fourth phase is partially constructed. Not enough that you could move even one ounce of oil through it, but sections of it are done. Now, Biden gets elected, and he's announced that one of his first executive orders, if not Wednesday, more likely Thursday morning, is going to be to reverse this, go back to President Obama's thing. 
I'm not sure we were caught flat-footed. I think why the government seems to be a little quiet about this is they don't want to try to do their negotiating out loud or on Twitter or on in the media. I'm sure uh, the first phone call after the uh, after the inauguration that is held between Trudeau and Biden is going to talk about this, and there will be two sides to that conversation. One is, is there anything we can do to keep it going? You do need oil. I know you want to, like we are talking about being you know, carbon neutral by the year 2050, but this is 2021, and we still need our oil. Is there anything, a different routing? Is there something we could do to resurrect the project? And then, if not, look, part of it's been built. Canadian companies put money into this. Is there damages? Can, can they get some of this money out? And so I'm sure there's going to be lots of talk but that'll be behind closed doors. It won't be done in the media. Quite a different style than the Trump administration. Yeah, and it was just that Seamus O'Regan, who's the natural resources minister today, seemed anyway to be sort of saying, well, we're still talking about this. And yet the reports that we're getting are, well, you can talk all you want, but it's on his list of his to-do list that is apparently already destined for the Oval Office desk for day number one to be scratched off. So, you know, who knows? But... How big, okay, let's say this does get scratched and let's say we don't have the ability to keep this thing going, leaving aside the damages side of this for a second, mm -hmm. what impact would this have on Canada and particularly on Alberta? Well, uh, just to, again, talk about this a, a bit in the past tense for a second. Uh, Alberta was sensing in 2020 that, you know, this thing might get canceled depending upon how the election worked out. So they did two things. They invested $1.5 billion. This is not Canada. This is Alberta government. And they put in a loan of nearly $6 billion into the project. And their advice to the principals behind the project was speed things up, build as much as you can, because their gamble was that if this was 90% completed by the time of the inauguration, who in their right mind would think about canceling this? Unfortunately, in July of 2020, a Supreme Court ruling came down that some of the assessments weren't done properly, both environmental assessments and talking with natives. So they called a halt to the construction, um, and, and uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, who was helping, trying to reroute some of these things around creeks and rivers and other things like that, they were called off. So the, the, the gamble by the Alberta government was to get as much done as they could, and they didn't get enough done. They're the first big loser. The people of Alberta, because they invested $1.5 billion, that's equity, and the loan, not sure if any of that will come back, Second big loser, of course, is the Alberta oil industry. Now, the Canadian government has tried to help by doing the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That takes oil from roughly the same source, but takes it across the um, uh, Rocky Mountains to B.C. The nice thing about that project, sponsored by the federal government, is that it was all in Canada, and the federal government is in control of all the permits that are needed. But the Keystone, because it's uh, multinational, don't have the same control. Jason Kenney rolled the dice and lost and unfortunately for Alberta, a big market at this moment appears to be sealed off at least via pipeline. Keep in mind, that oil could still go south, but it would have to go by train car. That's a much more expensive way of shipping right. oil. I also think more dangerous. And because of that, they won't get the same price per barrel that they would have if they could have shipped it through pipelines. It seems as though, anyway, the way things are going and the way things, and you and I have talked about this numerous times, that the effect of oil and gas in the industry in Canada, if Alberta continues to hurt and if Alberta's oil industry continues to sag, this has impact right across the country. 
Yes, certainly. We don't want to see one of our larger economies in any kind of trouble. We don't want to see any provincial economy in any kind of trouble. But Alberta, uh, with both Edmonton and Calgary, more than a million people involved, <clears throat> Alberta needs some good news. They've been on such a poor run. You can remember at one point in 2022 or 2020, we had a conversation about the price of oil. Do you remember at the end of March, early April, you couldn't give oil away? The price actually went negative. Uh, you had to pay people to take it off your hands. That that time period wasn't good news. And for Alberta, they've actually been on a positive run in the last few months of 2020. Oil has been creeping up to around $50 a barrel. That starts to make a lot of things much more possible. And I think they were hoping that if they could get pipelines to start taking oil, whether it's west to Vancouver or south into the United States, that would be even more so that this would just be a temporary setback and they'd have something to look forward to. So... Jason Kenney, the, the premier in Alberta, has said, well, if Mr. Biden signs this letter, I'm suing. I'm going to take him to court. Breach of, breach of trust. We had approvals, and now you can't rescind it halfway through with some of the sections built. Uh, I, I think that uh, Mr. Trudeau is going to say something similarly, only he'll do it a little more quietly and behind the scenes. Um, and his argument is going to be, Joe, we agree with you. We also see a green future for our country, but that's 2050. That's three decades from now. In the meantime, short term, we still have cars that need gasoline. We still need to use uh, petrochemicals in, in plastics and other devices, other things that we have out there. Is there some way we can make this happen? And I think that's where the line is going to be burning. And here's the other thing. I think Biden is more a more a kindred spirit with Trudeau. I think there will be a chance for some discussion. So I don't know how hard and fast this is going to be. And I suppose Thursday, if you don't see this among one of the executive orders, give credit to the diplomats who've been burning the midnight oil that maybe they were able to buy a bit of a reprieve. But I think um, Biden wants to show very quickly he's not Trump. So expect a whole series of executive orders that really signal this, whether it's about the environment or, in this case, around a pipeline or participation in the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, Biden is looking to make a difference and make a difference quickly. Oh, absolutely. And, and you wonder if the Democrats had not won all three levels or levers of government in uh, power in the, in the states, if this might have gone a little more slowly, but they do have all those. And so I expect this to happen. Now, when I said about all of Canada feeling this, here's part of the other thing, and this is a, as much political as economic, but we know about equalization payments in this country. And for generations now, it seems Alberta has been the one who's been paying the equalization, helping the mm -hmm. have not provinces. If Alberta continues to suffer, who picks up the ball on that? Who ends up having to start paying those bills? Well, here's the good news or the bad news about equalization payments. They, they are sorted out every year based on the state of each provincial economy. Why Alberta was paying, the feeling was that it was just random luck that Alberta had the oil. It's really Canadian oil. Sure, you're the province, but it's part of Canada, so your good fortune needs to be shared with others. We have another province that has a tremendous oil reserve uh, called Newfoundland. And it quietly also has been changing its status in the Equalization Payment Club. 
conceivably Ontario or Quebec, if they get through this COVID situation better, they may be more contributing, and it'll be other provinces collecting. So it does vary a little bit. There was a time, if you go back into the 2000s, where Ontario was actually collecting a couple of bucks through all this rather than being a source of those equalization payments. So it does move, and I don't think we should ever think of this as a big, big change. It moves just on the basis of how those provincial economies are. And, and the good news, I suppose, in Canada is when one province is hurting, somebody else might be doing well. But you're, you're absolutely right. This is why I think Mr. Trudeau, even though he doesn't have many members from Alberta, in fact, he has none from Alberta and none from Saskatchewan, both of which have natural resources, he has been trying to reach out. He's trying to build the case. I see what is good for Alberta is good for Canada. Let me try to help. But the problem with something like a pipeline is it takes years to make something like this happen, even with concerted effort. Um, and so I don't know. I just don't know where this is quite going to go. No, and I don't think there's a whole lot of trust between people in the West and the current government. And I think that if this gets cancelled, even if the current government was negotiating with Joe Biden, if Joe Biden cancels this, I think this only makes the, the wounds deeper out there that, hey, our government didn't even do anything for us, fair or not. Yes. Having said that, that then puts even more pressure to get the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline done. Remember that, but Absolutely. it's not a new pipeline. You're taking an existing pipeline, building a second one right beside it to, again, dramatically expand market for Alberta oil. This is why the federal government bought bought that pipeline and, in theory, are clearing the way. So it's even more pressure to now make something happen there if you can't make it go south. And then let's not forget as well we've got that uh, northern gateway pipeline to take natural gas to the, to the uh, west coast. Again, pressure on that. So for the government standpoint, federal government standpoint, the more they can be seen as doing something, even if it's not everything, the more it's going to help them. But then they've got to knock it out of the park. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty, the once and future Dundas Citizen of the Year. You know, I've never asked, are you a member of the Dundas Sports Hall of Fame yet? No. Oh, well. No, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty astute, uh, astute group. They, uh, they have standards, so that's not looking good. All right. So you were involved in the creation of it though, right? I was, and that's, I would hope, uh, I certainly didn't do it so well, I could be a member of it, but because it was long overdue for guys like Bob Myers and so many wonderful inductees that we've had. So yeah, we got it going when we decided to, uh, build a hockeyville room, uh, on the second floor and, you know, those renovations and delayed have been well documented, but that was always the plan. So we'd have somewhere to, to, uh, host it, which is why it's a wall of fame. Cause it's easier to, you know, recognize people with plaques and so on. And, and, uh, soon, um, Probably when we get playing hockey again, they'll be you'll be able to go in and you know Don Knight's in there, so we'll have some video boards you can just kind of click on and get a full full range of the uh, of the people's career that are you know being acknowledged. You can't do it you can't do it properly on a small plaque as you appreciate. So no, for sure. Why but not? you know what? And, are you still involved though? Are you still involved in the organizing committee? No, all I did, Scott, was um, had the idea. Wanted to do it, got a committee together, met with them twice and said, okay, this is my last meeting. And they went, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm not going to be on this committee. 
and said, you know, you guys do it. You know, there was some, some older guys that would remember, you know, um, guys from 60, 70 years ago. And I didn't grow up in Dundas, <clears throat> but they found out shortly thereafter. I ran into Bob Litson at the arena one day and, and uh, they'd had three meetings and he came up to me and he, <laughs> he, uh, he, he called me a couple, couple names that weren't uh, gentlemanlike, but uh, <laughs> understanding then why I didn't want to be on the committee. Because he said to me, he said, is billiards a sport? I said, do you have anything else? He said, what about darts? I said, yes, they're both sports. He said, just like that. That's what you want an answer. So I gave you one. Well, how do you, how do you figure their sports? I said, well, there's not, nothing else on. TSN and Sportsnet have it on. They have darts. They have billiards. Sports channel. He just walked away. I mean, that's all I got. Like, I don't. What's a sport? I don't, you know, it's the athlete, right? So, um, curling's a sport. I mean, they used to smoke and and drink while they played, but it's still a sport. It was way more exciting when they did that, by the way. Well, I did. And the ashes would slow the rocks down. It was always (laughs) always more entertaining. Well, I will say this. I have no idea, and I'm going to look into it. I have no idea who is on the committee now for that. Hall of Fame, but uh, we got to get Don Robertson in there because he deserves to be in there. So let's uh, we'll, we'll work on that one. But as I said in my introduction, soon to be once in future and soon to be Dundas Sports Hall of Famer Don Robertson is who we're talking to today, as we do every Monday at this time. Um, actually, I was just talking to another one of the Hall of Famers from Dundas today. I was talking to Lisa Tomitis, head coach of the women's national basketball team. So it's all Dundas Sports Hall of Fame day today. Um got a lot of things I want to get to you about Don in the world of sports today. Last week, we never, it was just after we talked a couple days after when the NHL season got going and the very first game created a bit of controversy that we saw between Toronto and Montreal because Montreal's defenseman took a few big cross checks on Austin Matthews back. And that led to an, an agent in the league who represents Connor McDavid and whose agency represents Austin Matthews send out a tweet saying like, why are we letting our, our stars get abused like this. And then last night or yesterday or the day before, I guess on Saturday, we saw Patrick Mahomes yesterday. We saw Patrick Mahomes hurt his neck in a, in a game. He just, he got tackled, but nonetheless, one of the stars of the NFL gets tackled. And now people are saying, how can we let our stars get not protected? Should be the, should leagues be doing more to protect their stars? Or at some point, do you say, look, play or don't play, but, you know what, we can't put a bubble wrap around you. I agree with the bubble wrap concept. I mean, uh, both sports, hockey's the fastest sport in the world outside of horse racing and car racing, uh, but it's the fastest team sport in the world, and it's contact. And football's the same way, and I think the NFL have gone a long way to protecting their quarterbacks. Uh, you know, they late hits or penalized by suspensions and I think the NFL have done a pretty good job trying to, you know, bring some player safety into it, as have the NHL. But when basically fighting has been eliminated in the National Hockey League, and there's a guy that used to be on Saturday nights that said it all the time and he's right. Uh Cherry would always say, you know, when you as soon as you get rid of the policeman and no and there are no consequences for doing things like that to speak of more and more of it will happen at interesting points in time. 
as you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, if somebody took those liberties with Austin Matthews, they would have to deal with Ty Domi or Marty McSorley. And who are they going to deal with now? I mean, Wayne Simmons fought in that game. And there are a number of people that think that fight gave the Leafs a spark and helped them win the game. But Don, it's but, the, uh, the argument has always been, Don, that the NHL doesn't need the enforcers because theoretically the idea behind it is you don't need to have fighters because the league is going to look after these things for you. The league is going to be the one to step in and will monitor the suspensions and the penalties so that you no longer need to take matters into your own hands. The, the problem with that is I don't see it. I, I don't see it happening very often. So I'm okay with taking out the enforcers if the league wants to step in and simply enforce, in my mind, simply enforce the rules that are on the books. But if you're not going to do that, then I would be back. I would be with Don Cherry saying, you know what? Okay, if you're not going to police it, let the players look after it. Well, I, I, I don't disagree, and and it gets down to my friends, the officials, and they do it by directive. But you know, if you're going to, and and look at, it's an interesting game. All players aren't generally treated equally. Like if, if uh, Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner or the premier players for uh, the Winnipeg Jets or anybody get manhandled, then you know what? Call a five-minute major. I mean, if somebody's going to cross-check Austin Matthews in the back, the penalty's likely different than he is if he's, if he's doing it to um, a fourth-line guy. So give him a five-minute major. And then the guys know that if you're going to do that, you're going to get a major and you're going to hurt your hockey team. And if he's a repeat offender, suspend him. What's really interesting this year is that in previous years, all right, so let's say the Leafs are playing against the pick your team, the, the Nashville Predators. They play the Predators maybe once in the year, maybe one home and away, uh, but they may just see them once in the year. And you're playing Nashville and the guy from Nashville causes a Leaf player to be injured with a questionable play. All right, so now, you know, Nashville may get a guy suspended for a game, but the Leafs are out of player for a period of time. That's bad. But now that all the games are in your division and every game is a two-point game and there is, I hate to say this, there is a benefit perhaps to softening up or hurting a player on another team. Do you not have to increase the suspensions? Let's say somebody, and let's not say the Leafs, let's pick another team. Who, who's the best? Let's say someone chops Connor McDavid's ankle and breaks his ankle. Are you not miles ahead now by having Connor McDavid out of the division? Because that the Oilers now are in big, big trouble. I just don't know how the league deals with it. Once upon a time, it was just bad. Now it's really bad. Yeah, no, I understand the point you're making. It's a long way from cross-checking uh, Austin Matthews, which is where we Well, we what, if, this, what if that cross-check in the back had caused him to miss two weeks, and that would well, be five or six games? That's That type of play generally is crack ribs, right? So you're right, two, three weeks. And what you don't want to have happen, which is to your point, you want the league to deal with it because you don't want – the Leafs playing them, and they're going to play them shortly because they're all, you know, there's only seven of them now that the Leafs, so that's fine. We'll go after your best player or the, the Oilers, whoever, you know, like it might've been a fourth line guy, although I don't know why he'd be able to get his Connor McDavid cracks his ankle. 
Well, the, the Oilers aren't going after the guy that did it. They're going after that team's best player. And then, then you're back in the same boat as having the enforcer around, right? And it takes away from the game. So if the, you're right. If the league do deal with it in a severe way, then I think, th- I think that function will work. Uh, but they're going to have to do it. And they're going to have to do it if somebody gets hurt. And I'm not always a big fan of just suspending guys when they're when they hurt a guy. I Agreed. mean, Agreed. Absolutely agree. You you cross check a guy the right way, and you just don't happen to injure him because you missed. The intent was there. Like if you know if you're trying if you're trying to hack a guy, you know, and and you miss his wrist, well, the guy should get five five games for bad aim because he's trying to take the guy out. Yeah, I think you have to look at intent, not result of, of the uh, play. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. They never do that, though. They never, ever do that. But And, and you know, like, I, I don't want someone to think that this is, oh, this was an Austin Matthews thing and guys for the Leafs are rising. No, I, I would say this for any team now, especially in this conference, with a shortened season and with four of the teams only making the playoffs and, and the star players – being so important that if you miss two weeks, that that could Don, that could literally be enough time to keep you out of the playoffs if your best player was out for two or three weeks. I think the league has to has to look at this and say, look, whether it's a cross check or a slash or whatever else, even if it's not a suspension, we got to be telling the refs the rules are there. Call the rules. We're not adding new rules. Just call what's in the book. And if you, you know. I think Austin Matthews should have been penalized earlier in the game when he cross-checked Ben Sherratt. They were looking now; they were face to face, but he cross-checked him and broke his stick across Sherratt's arms. That, to me, should have been a penalty. You got to call well, the book without question. You can't let Austin Matthews get away away with that and expect that if he's cross-checked in front of the net for that to be called. You, you got to have it right across the board. You mean? They can't get a free pass. If you're going to try and protect your premium athletes, you can't give those guys a free pass or everybody on the other side is going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right. Radley, right. Gets, Radley gets to run around like an idiot. And as soon as we touch him, we get a penalty or we get a suspension. Like that won't work. You're right. They have to call that stuff. Now, is, in your mind, has there been something that was a suspendable incident that has not been suspended yet no no i'm not talking suspension i'm not talking suspension i just mean if you are even even if you have the refs say look we understand the importance of players of of star players of players period uh if there are violent and and i count that cross check to to austin matthews back as a violent play just as i counted the cross check from austin matthews to ben sherratt as a violent play You've got to at least call the penalty on that to set the tone and get them to slow it down. Because one thing we know about every athlete, if you give them a line, they will always push the line. And and you can't go back once you've not called it up to that line. So you have to set the bar of what is acceptable and they will play to that line and they will understand it if you do that. But you can't just ignore, 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 because they're all, it's only going to get more every time. Oh yeah. No, they'll, they'll push it. And, and then the referee's got to make the end. And it's interesting because if it's a tied game 3-3, the officials, that line might move a little bit in the third period. You know, something that they would have called in the first period, they may not call in the third. 
which creates a little bit of confusion. But if you know the officials, you'll be all right with it. But as soon as they start pushing the line, you got to snap, snap them with a couple penalties. Both sides say, boys, we're going to reel this thing back in again. Now, See, I don't, I don't love the NFL's rule around the quarterbacks. I think the NFL have made it so that the quarterbacks are untouchable to a fault. But at least it's pretty consistent that if you touch a quarterback in the head, even if it's not much of a blow, if you touch him in the head, you're going to get called. I don't always love it. A lot of times I think it's becoming flag football, but the referees don't let it go regardless of whether it's the first play of the game or the fourth quarter. And we've seen that for the most part. They miss some, of course, they're human, but can, they're pretty consistent about saying we're not going to let that go. Well, I, I, I said earlier on, I think the National Football League have done as good a job as anybody has protecting the quarterbacks. I mean, they said, look, we can't continue to have this happen. They're our bread and butter. The star guys, Tom Brady, uh, you know, Allen and Buffalo, like people come to see these guys play. And if you're going to protect them, then is there a little bit of overkill? There might be in a couple of cases, but you're either going to do it or you're not. Yeah, no, I, I, um, again, I, I would just, especially this year, especially considering the impact of a, of a cheap shot injury of an injury period, but especially of a cheap shot injury to a star player. Uh, I, I just don't think that you can turn your back. And again, not talking about suspensions, not talking about enforcers, just call the book call the rule book and if it's a cross check if it's a slash if it's a check from behind call the book and at least then the players understand and hopefully they won't continue to push the bounds until until you get to someone being hurt which is then don always when the nhl finally steps in and says oh wait a second someone got hurt we got to pull this back no no don't wait for that to happen do it now yeah no i and i I'm just not a fan of an injury determining the length of a suspension. I think no. it's the intent. I think it's the viciousness of it. You know what I mean? Like, so, so 100% doesn't get hurt. You know what? That, that wasn't the guy's plan. He tried to hurt him. No, uh, 100%. And we, bad aim. We've seen it many, many, many times where you'll get a guy who gets no suspension or whatever, and part of the rules or part of the, the decision as given is, well, he came right back and played. You're right. Bad aim should not be a mitigating factor. If your intent was to maim the guy, your penalty should be based on your intent to maim that person. Um, you know, and, and, and I, look, it's always going to be that way. It's always going to be the way that a, an injury is going to lead to more but it doesn't mean that you can't close the gap a little bit. Agreed. There are two teams in particular in the Canadian division that we're all going to be watching very closely that have both had a lot of problems in recent years because they can't win. And they have over and over and over again said, we're going to change our style. We're talking about the Oilers and the Leafs, by the way. We're going to change our style. We're going to become more defensively responsible. We're going to look after our own end better. And we're only two to three games into the new season, but honestly, Don, neither one of those teams looks like they have the capability of changing because they're doing a lot of the same things that they've been doing for years now. You've coached hockey for a long time. Do, do you believe that you can teach at this level, you can teach a bunch of guys to completely change their style so they become that defensively responsible team? 
or is it just the DNA of these players that they're offensive players and that's just how they play and you live with it? No, you can teach them how to play defensive hockey. You can uh, you can make them responsible. What you have to do though is is have them find the will to want to. Um, when you get those high end offensive guys, in most of them, in their mind. Okay, I'm not worth a damn defensively, but I'll make it up before the end of the game offensively. And that's how their mindset is. And they, generally speaking, don't put the team first. But when you see guys like Barry Trotz being able to do that with high-end players and some of the other better coaches, the better coaches in the National Hockey League can get the premier players to play defense. They all know how. Those guys understand the game. They just... Their will to play defense is just at about a two. And you've got to take it up. And they've got to pay the price defensively or they're not going to find success. So absolutely, you can teach an offensive guy. You don't even have to teach him. You just have to create the will for him to understand it's important or we're not going to win. And you pull him aside and said, you have to lead us in this department. Because everybody knows how you play. If you buy into playing defense, everybody else is going to do it. But it's quite a challenge. You don't have to teach them much. You just have to find the have to drive the will into them. And okay. you can't threaten them anymore. I mean, no, you can't. You, know, you can't. What are you going to say you to can't. John Traveris? He's going to say, "I'm making eleven million this year, next year, the year after. Bite me." Not doing. <laughs> well, but I mean, there are guys in the least like, I don't think Mitch Marner is all that bad in his own end. In fact, I think he's often very good in his own end. He blocks shots. He's got a good stick. He does a lot of things. He penalty kills. But there are guys that seems that they just, it's not even in your own end. Like watching the game the other day, one of the things that, you know, as a kid, when you're watching, when you're teaching kids to play, one of the things is if it's a loose puck, the first job is to go get, make sure you get the puck before you chip it by. And you see the Leafs doing flybys. They're trying to get the puck, but they miss the puck. And now they're out of the zone and the guys behind them. Like there's stuff that you look at and you say, surely they've been told. I know they've been told. They have to have been told. They have to have been told 5,500 times and they still won't do it. And at that point, how do you change it? How do you how do you make what you just said happen happen if you've told them again and again and again and again and again you can't you can't sit them because they're making so much money they're untradeable you don't want to trade them it just seems like it's not built into their DNA well what what did I say earlier you as a coach you have to find a way to 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 will that into them so that they understand for the greater good you got to do it they know those flybys don't work you know they scoot by and there's a one in 10 chance you're going to poke it past the defenseman for a breakaway and you go for a little skate. Like you can't, you can't play the game easy. And you, I mean, we talk about that, that in our dressing room all the time. Just stop. Don't skate by him. Stop. Stand. If you won't check him, at least stand in front of him, make it awkward for him. Like at least do that much. And you, you get your premium guys to do that. Now the really good players, you don't have any trouble with it's. It's not even always your top end guys. Like I think, probably the worst guy in the Toronto Maple Leafs for that is probably Nylander, and uh-huh. he's not even the top four guys. But him, he's never changing. I he's, think, and he's not, gonna, can, he's not even going to fly by. He's going to float by. I think to me, the clearest indication 
if you were to judge a guy, and I've believed this since I was coaching kids hockey when they were six and seven years old, the clearest indication of whether someone is trying is how often they stop on a shift, like literally slam on the brakes because stopping and starting is tiring. But stopping a lot of times means that you're willing to not just keep your momentum and glide around and you are working hard. And and you want to know something? Watch, if it's the Leafs, watch um, Hyman. Watch Zach Hyman. The guy is stopping and starting constantly. And you wonder why he's got so much success and looks like he's working so hard. It's because he's not doing the flybys. He's stopping and starting. But getting guys to stop in a positive way Seems like it's the most difficult thing in the world. Don, for, for you pay me 10 or 11 or 8 or $12 million, I will stop and start until my legs fall off. But a lot of these guys, it, it just, and I'm not just talking about the Leafs. I mean, we see it with a lot of teams. Um, you would think that asking them to stop and start and work hard and get tired and then keep the shift short and come off, you would think it was the hardest thing in the world. Just next time people are watching a game, watch and see who is stopping and starting and who is just skating by and you'll see who's working hard. And it, it is, to me, it's a clear, easy thing to notice. Well, I, I said earlier, if you won't check them, at least stop in front of them, right? But did you hear it? Stop. You have to stop. You have to make the effort to do something. But just if, and the defensemen know, and other players know who's just going to w- swing by and wave at you, because so they just wait. Yeah, the good players just wait you out. Guys like Crosby and that, you know, they know every guy in the ice, like most players do. There's a guy. And there's say, a guy. There's a guy who say, will stop he, and fight for it. Yeah, well, he's why he's one of the best players in the National Hockey League at his age because he never takes a shortcut. And that's why he's a good leader because he's, he doesn't just, he doesn't tell you to go do something he won't do. He'll do anything. He'll fight. He doesn't do it much, but he will. Like, you, you can't say he won't fight and he's not particularly, he's better at scoring goals than he is fighting, but he'll do anything to win. He blocks shots, but you're right. He stops and starts. Doesn't take the easy way out. Doesn't matter what sport we're talking about. Don't take the easy way out. I just I, I'm 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 remaining reluctant to believe that the Oilers and Leafs can change enough that they can be that team that you look at eventually and say that's a team that's going to win the Stanley Cup. And again, it sounds like it's a it sounds like it's a ridiculous thing to say. Look at the team that stops often. And that's a team that's competing, but it really is. If you're willing to, because it's hard on your legs, gliding through is a lot easier than stopping and then having to put in the energy to start up again. It's way harder. I think Barry Trotz made the Washington Capitals Stanley Cup champions because he made the players accountable. He even made Ovechkin work hard defensively when it mattered. He knew he had to let him go a little bit, but at least he had Ovechkin paying the price. I think it cost Barry Trotz's job in Washington because a number of the better players are going, yeah, we won, but you know it had nothing to do with him. They want to get rid of him because they didn't want to stop and start and work that hard, to your point. They didn't want to have to pay that price. That winning wasn't as important as having fun to them. And will they win again? No, nope, not unless you get a guy like Trotz. And, when, and another good example was when Mark Hunter was there. Where was he? Yeah, Washington. Yep. And uh, made the guys accountable, made them pay the price. Wow. 
They didn't want him around anymore. And Mark Hunter knew he was going back to London. He didn't care. He, if Radley's the best player and he won't do as he's told, I sit him out. Yeah, Dale Hunter. Do it my yeah, way you know, or you can't right. play here. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, uh, I do, along with Rick Zamperin from CHML and Bubba O'Neill from CHCH-TV and Steve Milton from The Spectator, every week we do something called Home Games. It's on YouTube. It's a sports discussion. People can find it. Look up Home Games Hamilton on YouTube. They can find it. There's lots of them there. Uh, But one of the questions, I want to ask you one of the things that we talked about than the one that just went up today. Question was, any era, any sport, any gender, any whatever, you can sit down and have a beer living or with living or dead any athlete. They can be alive now. They can be long gone now. Who is the person that you would want to sit down and have a beer with and just talk whatever? Tough call if it's going to be one. Um, I, I mean, Muhammad Ali is the guy I would want to try and figure out how we ticked and you know because a lot of it was an act um so he's he's definitely the guy i'd like to spend some time with yeah i uh, i don't want to give away who um who the answers were for some of them because uh there were some uh, bubba in particular had a terrific answer bubba's answer was absolutely terrific i i went with and not necessarily because I find him that fascinating, but just m- my childhood hero was Bernie Perrant, the goalie for the Flyers. And just something about meeting up with the person that as a kid, you just thought was the greatest guy in the world. I I, I would find that amazing still. Um, but I don't want to give away who Bubba said. The other one that someone pointed out on social media was Terry Fox, which yes, I, I think that one might, uh, might be someone that I would put on the list as well. But um but yeah, mom, he's, uh, and he's an athlete. Absolutely, he's the greatest. He's the greatest Canadian, and that's where I picture him. Yeah, he'd be. He and and he was such a young guy. He'd, you know what made you want to do this, right? I mean, what a great a guy like you would have a great interview with him. But uh, anyway, Ali, well, I mean, especially now. Things, <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> if we could get him now, wow, that would be good ratings. Um, be pretty good exclusive. Yeah, you know, and the funny part about it is that there are very few, as I thought about this, and and there are very few amazing athletes who are also amazing conversationalists. Some of them are. there. Are, I mean, there are certainly guys. Like, there are some that you just think, man, they would be fantastic to talk to. But so many great athletes, whether it's because they've said everything they can possibly say in their interview or in their, in their career because they've done so many interviews, or whether they're just fatigued by the media or whether they're just so obsessed with their sport that they don't really have a life off the court or off the ice or whatever. So many of the names that you would think are guys that wouldn't necessarily be the best in their sport. Oh, I, I agree with that. And you would know this better than most people on the planet. I have to think that being able to interview an athlete um, in his retirement is a far different conversation than when he's playing. You know, if a guy's still in the National Hockey League or the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, you interview them in the summertime or in the off season, that conversation would be so much different 
15 years after they retired. So they have different perspectives. They can say what they think. They don't have to say the, the pat answer. They don't have to be politically correct, perhaps. You know, maybe like a Jim Kelly uh, or all kinds of guys after the fact. You, you would know better than I, but I'm sure those interviews would be far better than when they're active players. There are some guys that are always great interviews, no matter what, but I, I will say this, that as a rule, interviews are way better before an athlete hits it big and after, as you say, when it's been a few years since they've been retired. And I'm not even sure it's because they, maybe it's partially because they feel they can say anything. I think it's because before they're really excited about that someone's interested in them. And afterwards, they're really excited that someone's still interested in them. Yeah, and during the during the height of their or his or her career, you know, you kind of get you get tired of it. I mean, you know, okay, I got to talk about this again. I got other things I want to do. Um, it's a it's a lesson though, Don. And I mean, you've dealt with a lot of guys who are on the downside of their career. They finish their pro career and they're playing senior hockey now. Um, it's a lesson for a lot of these people. the The way you treat people when you're at your height you're going to want people to remember you and to think you're important and to deal with you when you're no longer the biggest name on the planet. Act accordingly. It is. And if you can give that advice to a, to a young guy, then, then you should, because you know what? It's that same old story. You're going to see the same people on the way down as you did on the way up. They're going to remember you. Yep. And no, they're, I agree. they're gonna like if you're coming back to your hometown and it's a small town and you think you're all that all of a sudden and haven't got time to go play in the charity golf tournament that you used to play in, boy, you know, you tarnish yourself in a hurry. You better retire in Arizona. Uh I'm I'm looking at this list and um that uh, so a bunch of people have responded on Facebook to Bubba's he posted the video and then you can see who his pick was, which again, I'm not going to give away, but some really interesting names on this list. Jackie Robinson. That would be a great one. Um, Terry Fox was there. Uh, let's see who else did people, Ali people put there. Uh, Rocket Richard. Yep. Um, Angelo Mosca. Okay. Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson, you know, Mike Tyson has become, he's an interesting guy. Like I would talk to Mike Tyson, even though there's, I mean, there's stuff in his past that is really untoward and ugly, but he somehow has become this new cuddly Mike Tyson. I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, I'm not sure everybody would agree. Shoeless Joe Jackson is on the list. Um, who else? Bill Russell, Roberto Duran, Mo Norman. Mo, I don't know if everyone knows who Mo Norman is. Um, he was a, a Canadian golfer. Uh, I, I, I think he was diagnosed with autism. I, I believe he was autistic. He certainly was a different kind of dude. Um, fascinating though. I talked to him once. I did an interview with him once at the Canadian open. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of guys that, uh, that would be fascinating to talk to if you had a beer and you had a couple hours, but there you go. Uh, was question. very eccentric. He was, well, again, I don't know if it was, I believe he it was may diagnosed. Not have been eccentric, yeah. Well, no, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think he was diagnosed with autism, but I'm not positive. If it wasn't, you're right. He was clearly very eccentric. If he was, then you can still be eccentric, I suppose, and be autistic. I mean, the two can be sometimes hand in hand, but uh, fascinating guy, though, an unbelievable golfer. Um, did everything different. There's not, a, there's not a golf instructor in the world who would say hit the ball like Mo Norman, but man, the guy could hit the ball. 
best swing ever. Probably. Well, best yeah. best ball striker, they say. Swing was weird. Swing was ugly. But boy, he could hit the ball. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.